uh, hope everyone is doing well. We're um, we're still uh, in this mode of uh, lockdown, and uh, hopefully that's going to free us up um, not too far off. But uh, every day is a new day when it comes to this. But uh, God is doing good things. I, I hear uh, that the Lord is uh, doing good things in, in many of your lives. I haven't spoken with all of you in the in the church, send us a send us a text and let us know how you're doing. But um, I'm excited uh, to see what God is continuing to do, whether we are meeting in a building or we're uh, doing Bible studies online. Uh, we've had some great times of fellowship uh, on our Wednesday night service. We're still gathering. It's just that it's on uh, on Zoom. We're meeting on Friday evenings at seven o'clock. We've got a men's Bible study at, at six o'clock on Tuesday morning. These are all opportunities uh, for you to be able to be involved uh, still and stay connected. Uh, that's my encouragement uh, to you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter eight, looking at verses 22 to 33. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there. I, um, last week I titled the message, How Is It That You Do Not Understand? Uh, today's title is, Why Do You, uh, Who Do You Say That Jesus Is? And that's a big question. I think it's a question that every person, every human being uh, has to answer at some point. Who is Jesus? Who did he claim to be? And who do you say that he is? But last week, looking back, uh, we started into this uh, chapter eight. It's really uh, um, all of this time with Jesus and his disciples is about discipleship. But this particular chapter has uh, a lot of revelation in it. Jesus is revealing things about himself to the disciples that were going to be needful for them as they uh, continue to get closer to the cross. And Jesus always was preparing them for the days that would come after the cross and after the resurrection and after the ascension, when Jesus would send out his disciples into this world to be a witness for him. This was all preparation. But in chapter 8, we started out uh, looking at how Jesus had fed the 4,000. Now, this was a time of the disciples learning a lesson again, especially since Jesus had already fed the 5,000 in the previous chapter. And now he's feeding, once again, a multitude of 4,000. The problem is, is that the disciples didn't learn the lesson the first time. There was more lessons to be learned. And after Jesus had uh, left uh, that place where the 4,000 were, were fed, he got into a boat once again with, with his disciples. And he made his way across the Sea of Galilee. And he was once again confronted by the Pharisees. They immediately came out and they, uh, they sought out Jesus and they were looking for a way that they might test Jesus. They might discredit Jesus. And after Jesus had told them and warned them that no sign would be given to them, to this generation, because they've already seen They've already heard and seen the signs, the proofs of who Jesus was. He's, he didn't oblige himself to give them any more proof or any more evidence. And we're told that he, in a sense, left them there standing. He didn't uh, give it to them. But he was also teaching his disciples something through this encounter with the Pharisees. He got into the boat that day, uh, leaving them, and he then began to warn the disciples 
about the leaven of the Pharisees. He also warned them about the leaven of Herod, because uh, these were two things that uh, they involve false teaching. They involved the, their own man-made doctrines that they were giving to the people, their traditions that they were trying to pass down to the people. And he knew that these were dangerous uh, uh, teachings. He knew that they would have uh, a, a bad effect upon the people and even upon the disciples and also the leaven of, the Her of Herod and the, the kingdom on earth mentality that was being even taught at the time. You see, the disciples were ever uh, growing in their understanding and their revelation of Jesus Christ, that he, in fact, was the Messiah, the coming one, the Holy One of Israel, but they did not completely get it, and they would not completely get it until really even after the cross. We're told that when they got into the boat that day, that they began to reason among themselves. And you see, that's where we always get ourselves in trouble, isn't it? When we begin to reason things within our heart and within our mind. God has given us promises. He's told us things. He's given us truth. But quite often we find ourselves in life situations reasoning about things in our heart. And that's what was happening with the disciples. It says in verse 16 that they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread that Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? And we know, and as we learned last week, it's because they didn't get it. It's because they didn't have an understanding of what just took place with these Pharisees. They didn't understand what Jesus had just encountered with them and what he had just said to them. And so Jesus was just simply saying to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In the case of the disciples here, Jesus then needed to, in a sense, give them a, we might call it a, a gentle rebuke, but he's reproving them for their lack of understanding. Has that ever happened with you, where you have felt that reproved by the Lord? Because you really weren't getting what he was doing, what he was allowing even to come your way in life. And we don't always get it. But And our Lord is gracious with us. He's merciful with us, but we don't always get it. They didn't perceive that day, nor did they understand. And Jesus said to them, is your heart still hardened? He says, "Have having eyes, do you not see? He says, having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? How I fed the 5,000, how I fed the 4,000, how I am the one who will provide. And, and here you are reasoning in your hearts, being concerned about how much bread you have along for the journey. And I'm speaking to you about spiritual things. How is it that you don't understand? And how is it that you don't remember? Our understanding as Christians, it requires from us that we keep a soft heart, a soft heart towards the things of God. Jesus knows that we can come to a place as Christians where pride and sin can get into our hearts, into our walks, into our lives. And it can create a, a, a spiritual problem within us. It can make us less receptive to the things of God. Uh, we might not hear his voice very clearly. And maybe like we used to. Has that ever happened to you in your walk? Where you found that you weren't really hearing the voice of the Lord like you used to? And 
what I've come to learn is that it's never because God is not speaking clearly. It's never because he is not able to speak clearly into our hearts. It's because we have neglected our own responsibilities as Christians. We've neglected those things that sharpen our vision, the things that sharpen our hearing, our understanding to spiritual things. We need to spend time in God's word. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time just getting to know our Lord, Jesus Christ, through his word, that we might know him in a greater way, that we might know how he responds to us and how we should respond to him. Those of us that are married, we uh, maybe have heard our wife say something like this to us at times. You just don't get it. You know, those things that go on in, in marriage when maybe the spouse has to say that, you just don't get it. And sometimes our response is, what? And, and maybe it's like, what did I do? What, what did I do? And, and, and the wife is just simply saying, you don't get it. You're not understanding what's going on here. And by the way, uh, ladies, I don't suggest that you approach your husband like that, but I think that it does happen. And sometimes I think that's the way it is with the Lord. The Lord is, in a sense, sighing in his spirit because we, there are things that we should get, but we don't. I want to kind of put that thought in your mind because going on in our study today, it again has to do with perception. It has to do with revelation. It has to do with the things that God is wanting to reveal, that Jesus is wanting to reveal to his disciples. And so let's continue on this morning in verse 22, the lessons that the disciples have to learn are many. I shared last week that walking with Jesus and getting into the boat with Jesus is a good time to get to know him. How you do that is spend time in your word. That's what we're doing this morning, spending time in the word of God that we might learn something about him, something about his nature, that it would that we would learn his character, his attributes in a greater way, just by reading his word and reading about his life. I believe that these disciples were learning from every situation, every encounter that Jesus allowed them to come into. These were times of life, like we learn, going from day to day, from lesson to lesson, in life, from testing to testing in life. It's, it's a life of learning. And really for us even, it's, it's the same thing. Remember that Jesus, that he had a predetermined time that he was going to begin to set his course towards Jerusalem. That time was drawing near. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to see that Jesus is going to leave this region of Galilee, and he's going to have his course set towards the cross. And so there were many revelations to come that the disciples needed to, to understand. We start uh, this morning with Jesus in verse 22 coming into a town called Bethsaida. We read, uh, then Jesus came to Bethsaida. This was a, a, a small fishing village. It was there on, on the northeast uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, uh, just a small town. It's actually mentioned seven times in all four Gospels. It's, according to John 144, it's the hometown of three of the disciples that were following Jesus, Philip and Andrew and Peter, were from this, this place of Beth Bethsaida. 
it uh, was also close to the place where Jesus had fed the 5,000 just weeks earlier. But we come now this morning to the 18th recorded miracle in the Gospel of Mark. This is the healing of a blind man who probably did not live in Bethsaida, but was in this town of Bethsaida on this day. And it's only recorded here in the Gospel of Mark. This is the only one of the Gospels that brings out this particular miracle. But this healing of the blind man uh, was a time that Jesus, I believe, was going to teach the disciples. Not only was get, get, did he have compassion upon this man and want to heal this man of his blindness, but he also wanted to teach his disciples another lesson. Jesus, and this isn't even the first time that Jesus had healed the blind man. We, we can read uh, in Matthew chapter 9 that on one occasion, Jesus healed two blind men. In John chapter 9, we read the story of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. And, it, and it's very possible that this man here and from uh, that Jesus is healing here was not probably born blind, but maybe through disease or through some accident, he became blind. In both Matthew and Luke, we see Jesus healing a man that was blind. He was also mute and demon-possessed. And so this miracle of healing somebody that was blind, this was not the first time that Jesus would do that. But one thing that we see about recorded miracles, and I've already mentioned this already, is that they always had a greater purpose. They always had a, a message or an impact, we could say, behind them. Sometimes it was just simply healing a person, one person, for the occasion. And, and that's the only person, maybe uh, other than the disciples, that even saw the miracle take place. Other times, Jesus, like the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, he would perform a miracle that a whole multitude of people would see. All of them were declaring his power and his authority and his ability to even to forgive sins. They were a declaration to this world of who he was. So let's look at this time of Jesus uh, coming into this town of Bethsaida. And verse 22, we're told that they brought a blind man to him and they begged Jesus to touch him. So Jesus, verse 23, we're told, took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. This is one indicator that maybe he wasn't born blind because he obviously uh, knew what trees look like. Then he put his hands on his eyes again. And he made him look up and he was restored and he saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Before we uh, get into this, uh, let's look at some things that are just on the surface here. We see that like many other times, it was the friends of this man or possibly family members that were bringing this blind man to Jesus. Obviously, he had a need in that way, not being able to see. But we see the, uh, these friends or these family members bringing this blind man to Jesus. Now, it doesn't even tell us the blind man's name. And the reason for that is because it's not really important to the story. It doesn't give us his name. It just simply says that they brought a blind man to Jesus. They obviously heard 
the, whoever it was bringing this man, they had heard or maybe they had even seen other miracles that Jesus had performed because they knew who they should bring uh, this blind man to. They knew that we need to get him to Jesus. And we saw the same thing when they lowered the man down through the roof at the foot of Jesus. It was the friends that brought their uh, lame man to, to Jesus, the crippled uh, man to Jesus. They also must have had enough faith that day to, uh, that faith operating, we could say, in their hearts and their minds to be able to uh, bring this blind man to Jesus. And, and they, they, they put it this way. They, they, they said, if you'll just simply touch him, that takes some faith, doesn't it? And that takes some belief to, to really believe that Jesus, if you'll just touch this man, he'll be healed. It required uh, them to have some faith, and I, and I believe they were exercising it. As a matter of fact, it says they begged Jesus to touch him. It doesn't say why, but it does say that Jesus took this blind man on this occasion, and he led him out of the, he held his hand, and he led him out of the town. Doesn't tell us why he did that. We can speculate. And there might be some reason that we'll look at uh, a little later here of why he took him out of the town. It could be that he did this because of the town's past. The ta the, it had a, a past testimony of being a place where the people lived in, in unbelief. The people that were there uh, also had unrepentive hearts. And, and Jesus quite often would not cater to that like when he came into his 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 town of Nazareth where he where he grew up and the people didn't receive him there this would have been another town that he wasn't readily received nor did the people have hearts of repentance this town though we read about it in Luke chapter 10 verse 13 Jesus gave a warning one day about this town as well as uh, as another town he says in Luke 10 13 woe to you uh, Cherizen woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon remember that Tyre and Sidon were those Gentile cities if the mighty works which were done in you speaking about their town had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago. You see, there was something, and they would have been sitting in sackcloth and ashes, which was just a sign of repentance. But you see, they weren't acknowledging Jesus. They refused to repent. And maybe this was a reason why Jesus led this blind man out of the town so that he might heal him. But then Jesus gets him out of town, and we're told that he spits in the man's eyes. Now, that, by our standards today, is very unconventional. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it, I don't know that it, it would be considered clinically clean to go and to spit into the eyes of a patient and then to just simply lay your hands upon him or that person. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus was very unconventional quite often in his approach and what he did. He wanted to demonstrate something of his power and his authority to, to heal. He never did healings the same. He always did them differently, and they were quite often for a different purpose. But spitting in a person's eye or eyes, uh, using saliva, we could say, uh, for the purpose of healing was not actually uncommon in the day. As a matter of fact, somebody that was blind, sometimes their eyes were matted over, 
because of uh, the disease or because of their blindness. And uh, some people have even thought that maybe his spitting into his eyes was to free up this, these matted eyes uh, so that he could perform this, this miracle upon this man. We don't know, but Jesus chose to spit into the man's eyes. And maybe it has something to do with just that personal contact, like laying hands on someone or uh, to spit into the man's eyes obviously would have got a blind man's attention. And so here's Jesus now laying his hands upon them. And after doing so, he asked the man uh, if he could see, and he looks up and says, I see men like trees walking. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that at this moment, in this place, in, in, in this moment of healing, that in a sense, he only had a partial healing. This, again, is the only place and the only time where we see Jesus performing a miracle like this, but it's not complete in the beginning. And it makes me, it, it kind of takes me back to what I started this study on about having eyes to see and ears to hear and having understanding uh, what Jesus is doing, and, and even another lesson for the disciples to see. He looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. And then it tells us in verse 25, we read that Jesus puts his hands on his eye on him again and made him look up. And we're told that he restored and he restored his eyes completely and that he saw clearly at that moment. Here comes the uh, complete miracle that he could clearly see now that miracle of Jesus. And it makes me really just consider that a lot of what's happening here in the bigger picture was for the sake of the disciples, for the sake of what they didn't see as they left those Pharisees and got into that boat. They didn't understand. And then Jesus had to rebuke them because they did not see, because they did not hear. So here we have this man now that has been made fully well, eyes that can see. And he also experienced the grace and the mercy and the compassion of our Lord. And, and again, another way that the Lord just showed his compassion toward, towards those in need, something that the disciples also were learning and watching. You see, eyes and our eyes can often see clearly, but we don't see clearly. Have you noticed that? We also at times find ourselves, in a sense, being blinded to truth. Eyes that are short-sighted. Have you ever found yourself in that way of, of being short-sighted, not able to see beyond what's in front of you? The life situation, what's going on in front of you. And with your physical eyes, all you can see is just what's in front of you right at the moment. You're, you're not even, even able to, to grab hold of maybe that God has a promise that he's going to take you through this, that all things work together for the good for those who love God. You're not able to, to grab onto that in the moment, moment, and you're, in a sense, short-sighted on the occasion. I, I think that happens to us quite often. And then there's times where we might say that we see dimly, like this blind man, only seeing uh, the men walking around like trees, not seeing the whole picture and, and seeing dimly. And, and, and that quite often happens with us also. We don't see it all. Maybe we want to, but we're not able to, to see the whole picture. We're not seeing clearly. And quite often that happened with the disciples. And I believe that Jesus may be even teaching them again another lesson. 
We also know that there are times where we may, might even find ourselves being nearsighted. Uh, you know, to be nearsighted, not again, not being able to see the other things going around. We're just so focused on just what's before us that we don't see the bigger picture. And that quite often was the problem with the disciples. They only saw for the moment what Jesus might have been suggesting. Did you forget bread? He's talking about the bread and us not having enough bread with us. And they, and they were really, in a sense, they were, they were nearsighted. They, they only saw and they only heard what they heard there. And, and, they, and they didn't get the whole picture. They were lacking in their understanding. This miracle that Jesus did that started with a partial hearing or a healing, excuse me, uh, or a gradual healing that Jesus did here uh, is not because Jesus needed to pray harder. It's not because Jesus, this was a tough one for Jesus. And he, and he, and he simply uh, laid hands on him and spit in his eyes, but that wasn't sufficient to, to bring a, a complete healing. You see, Jesus could have healed him right in the moment, completely, saw clearly, and he, he did it on other occasions. But here he chose to allow the man to see dimly in the beginning and then to have a, a full healing, to see clearly. <clears throat> Again, I believe that a, a lesson was being learned. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror, dimly, he says, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also have known, am known. You see, Paul is saying for himself, he's saying it to us also, that in a sense, we uh, see in the mirror dimly right now. We don't, we don't always see everything very clearly. We don't see the whole picture for instance, of what heaven is going to be completely like. We don't see completely every aspect about Jesus and, and to know all the answers to all the questions that, that get posed in our minds at times. We, we do see at times things in a mirror dimly. But then it goes on, Paul says, but then face to face. Can you imagine what that's going to be like on that day when we have a full revelation of Jesus, when we're, when we're actually standing face to face with Jesus and he gives us a full understanding of the so many things that we, we question and wrestle with when it comes to our understanding of spiritual things. He said, he goes on to say, now I know in part, but then, speaking about a future time, I shall know just as I also am known. I shall know. That's going to be a glorious day uh, for all of us. I believe this time could have also been a reminder for these disciples a reminder from one of their prophets, the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 35, which is a messianic promise, we read in verse 4 and 5 of that uh, chapter, it says, Say to those who are fear, fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. And this is speaking about the coming Messiah. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. You see, this was even a sign, a prophetic sign of the coming Messiah. The things that the Messiah would do and declare to this world that he is the coming one. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. This generation of Israel 
these religious leaders that Jesus stood before that day, these disciples, they all knew the scriptures. They knew these promises. They, they should have understood Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 35 as they looked at Jesus and they looked at the miracles that he was performing. They should have known. They should have understood. And this revelation of himself should have been clearly seen. But Jesus says uh, to those Pharisees that he's not going to give any other sign. And it's because they should have known. Jesus now brings his disciples to another place of revelation to a place where they would now need to confess with their own mouths who Jesus was, who Jesus is. In verses 27 to 30, look at your Bibles. If you're a Christian, then you too, at some point in your life, were brought to a point where you had to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And if you answered that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh, the Savior of the world, if you answered those uh, that question in your mind, in your heart, then you became a Christian. The moment you repented of your sin and asked him to come into your heart, you became a child of God with that recognition of who he is, who he claimed to be, and you acknowledge that. But you may have had a different opinion for maybe some years up to you receiving Christ. You may have thought of Jesus as just being a good person, a good man, a prophet. You know, he, uh, I don't really think that he's God. He's just the son of God. And, and you had all of these different reasonings in your heart and mind about who Jesus was or who he is. Jesus was going to bring his disciples to a point of openly confessing who he was. They've already been walking with Jesus for quite a long time now. They've been walking with him. He's been making declarations each and every day of who he was. And now it was that time that they needed to confess with their mouth. They needed to, to come to that place in their heart of who Jesus claimed to be. But Jesus does it in a way by first asking the disciples, uh, what is the public saying about me? What is the public saying about who I am? You've heard. You've heard the talk. You know what people are saying. What are they saying about me. I think that Jesus' way of doing this was to further have them consider in their minds what it is that people might say about who Jesus is. You might have been one of those persons that did that. You did not have an understanding of who Jesus is, who he was. And, and, you, and, and you, you made some false statements even to other people at a point in your, in your life, before you knew Christ. And then you came to that place in your life where you came to realize he is God in flesh. He is my Savior. He is my, my only hope of salvation. But the question that was going to follow that was going to be more personal. It was going to speak into the very hearts and the understanding of the disciples. Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. 
this uh, area that they travel to now, probably on foot, was about 25 miles away from this town of Bethsaida. So it was about a day's walk. They made this journey up to this area of Caesarea Philippi. Kathy and I have been in that area. We've stood there. We've seen the remains uh, the, uh, of things that are still there to this day. And here they are making their way uh, by foot. The disciples walking with Jesus were told on the road. And he asked his disciples at that moment, he said, walking with Jesus is always a time to learn. They were learning right now. Jesus had plans for this trip up to Caesarea Philippi. We need to have a day together. Let's take a walk, guys. We're going to head up to Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking down this road, Jesus says to them, who do men say that I am? That's a great question, isn't it? Uh, people do that all the time. They, 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 they question, you know, who do men say that I am? And so they answered, some say that you're John the Baptist, Jesus. And some say that you're Elijah. And others, they're just saying you're one of the prophets, Jesus. That's what we're hearing. That's what we've heard some of the people saying as we've been around the multitudes. And then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, how do you think in that moment, in a sense, they were put into a place of having to speak now for themselves? having to, to say something of their own opinion, of their own thought. You see, what Jesus was going to reveal to them now was an unfolding revelation. This was not something that they got, that they've known all along. They've probably wrestled with these thoughts. We know they have. Wrestled, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? And we know that they will even wrestle with this thought of him being the Messiah, the Christ, even all the way to the cross. They'll question that. And just like John the Baptist questioned it. You see, there are times that maybe you and I have even questioned Jesus. The disciples were in a place that they had to make a statement. They had to come to a, 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 a statement and a conviction in their heart. Who's Jesus? Who is he? Peter, then it says, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to Jesus, you are the Christ. He could have said, you are the Messiah which is another way of putting it. You are the Christ. And you know what? That's actually the most important question. It's not as important as who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? You see, for each one of us, it's a personal thing, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, I guess he, like quite often, was the spokesperson for the rest. Peter answers and says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warns them, all these disciples, that they should tell no one about him. Interesting. Peter, in the moment, he got it right. He said the right words. He had it right for that moment. But having it right then doesn't mean that the question marks would not arise later. And we're going to see that. I believe that Jesus was declaring to these disciples all along that he was the Messiah, the Christ. 
we know from another account that, that, that Jesus actually looked at the other disciples and then he looked at Peter. And I think that Jesus in this occasion uh, was setting the stage going forward. He was going to be uh, shortly making his way with these disciples towards Jerusalem. These were important revelations that they had to come to grips with. Uh, this preparation, this training, we might say, of the 12, it, it, it didn't just have to do with him being the Christ, but it also had to do with the future revelation of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They, these were going to be revelations that needed to be uh, ingrained and, and come to known in their hearts. It, it was going to be at the very heart of the gospel that they would know these truths. Jesus then goes on and he begins to, to tell them and give them more revelation as they're, they're walking along. He, he talks to them about his death and his resurrection. We, we read in verse 31 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. He began to teach them. He began to uh, reveal to them, give them revelation about something that is yet future, but something that was coming soon not too far off. And so the preparation that Jesus was doing with his disciples was coming. The death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was something that they needed to have a strong conviction of. This revelation needed to be in their hearts and minds even after the resurrection, even after they left Jesus in fear of the Romans. And as they departed from him, and they went back to their way of living and, and back to their occupations, and they, they followed after Jesus, you know, they, they, Jesus was gone, he was dead. They needed this revelation for the future. They needed to have this understanding going forward. But when he turned around, we're told in verse 33, and he looked at his disciples we're told that he rebuked Peter. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, in verse Miss 32, he spoke openly. Peter uh, uh, said aside, he actually took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Wrap your head around that one. They're, they're taking, he takes Jesus aside from the rest of them and begins to rebuke him for those words. That the Messiah would be put to death, be crucified, and, and, and killed. And, you know, and, and even though he's not getting that and really able to wrap his head around that, all he knows is that this can't be so. And he rebukes Jesus for it. But when he had turned around, now we're back on track. He looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see, this is another one of those occasions where Peter didn't get the full picture. The rest of the disciples, in a sense, probably didn't get the full picture either. But Peter was quick to respond. And so Jesus, looking at the other disciples, then turns to Peter and rebukes them. And maybe in a sense, he's saying, you know what? Uh, 
what you're saying, Peter, is this salvation that I've come for all of you, for these other friends of yours, these other disciples. And, and what I just shared with you about my death and burial and resurrection, this is needful, Peter. This must happen. I, I, I told you that these things must take place. And, and really that, in a sense, is the gospel being explained to them, but he didn't get it. And I'm, I'm sure that as he rebuked Peter, I, I don't think that Jesus was saying to, to Peter that he was filled with Satan or indwelt with by Satan. I, I, I don't think that he was saying that. I think he was saying to Peter, Peter, the way that you're talking right now is the way that Satan would be talking right now. That's, a, in a sense, what Jesus was saying, I believe, to Peter. Peter, you're being used as a tool of Satan. Did you know that Christians can be used as a tool of the enemy? That we, too, can say things at times that really just, they come into our heart and the mind for the moment, and we blurt them out, and we say things at times that we might say, you know what, that came from the pit of hell. That, that didn't come from the Lord. That wasn't wise in what I just said. That wasn't truth in what I just said. As a matter of fact, you know, in a sense, Satan just used me, gave me something. And that's really what was happening with Peter. You see, Jesus knew that there was not going to be an easy path to the cross. Uh, Peter uh, didn't like that. Peter didn't like that for the Messiah, who he just declared was the Messiah. We need to, you know, he, he, he was more concerned with saving himself and saving Jesus from this than he was in his understanding that these things must take place. That this path to the cross wasn't going to be easy. But it was necessary that it would come to pass. You see, the disciples were going to learn, and it wasn't even going to be until after the resurrection, that suffering leads to glory. That the path that Jesus was on right now are going to be soon taken as he leaves Galilee towards Jerusalem was going to be the path of suffering that was going to lead him to the cross. But that path of suffering was going to lead to glory. These disciples would learn that lesson after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after they were commissioned to go out into this world and to preach the gospel, after they themselves were martyred for their faith, martyred for their proclamation of this gospel message that they now have a, a full understanding of. They've seen the risen Lord and their testimonies of that, their witnesses of that, that suffering was going to lead to glory, that they were going to go out of this world, that they were going to depart this world into glory, even through suffering themselves. They needed to learn this lesson. This was all preparation for them, for what was yet to come. It's really the same for you and I. We need to understand that the sufferings in this life will eventually lead to the glory that we will experience when we're in heaven with him. Suffering does lead to glory. We have all been given an opportunity to go out and proclaim this good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples. 
And if you want to look at it in chapter 24, uh, verse 46, this is Luke's account of the Great Commission. We read in verse uh, 45, let's start there, that uh, Jesus opened their understanding. There's that word again. He opened up their understanding. This is after the resurrection. This is before his ascension into heaven. That he opens up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You know, the light bulb comes on in the moment. And he says to them in verse 46, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead the third day. And then he went on to tell them the message that they're to go out and to preach, not only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that repentance and remissions of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. He actually gave them the message right here in a nutshell. It, it, it was necessary that the, the Christ should suffer. That it was necessary that he would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, as it is written, just as the Old Testament prophets foretold, what you are seeing right now has been fulfilled. I have risen from the dead. And here's the message that I want you to go out into this world with. We possess that message today. 2,000 years later, that same message is the message that Jesus Christ wants you and I to take to this world, that it was necessary that Jesus would die on the cross. It was necessary because the only way that I could have forgiveness of sins was for him to shed his holy blood on that cross on that day for my sin. And it was necessary that he would be put into a tomb completely dead. And it was necessary to fulfill the scriptures that three days later that Jesus Christ would come out of that tomb alive and that he would show himself alive, that he would be on this walk in this earth for 40 days after the resurrection, showing himself alive to many people and then ascending up into heaven into glory with the Lord. It was necessary for these things to take place. We have that message in our hearts. We have the ability to go out. And not only that, but look at verse 49. He told the disciples, it's the same promise to you and I. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. If you're in need of that power this morning, let me tell you what the power is. It's the power of the Holy Spirit upon you in your life that you might be a witness of Jesus Christ to a dying world. We live in a world that is looking for hope more than ever right now. They're looking for answers. They're looking for hope. And we have the remedy for man's sin. We have the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells inside of us. And he also wants to be upon us in all power so that we can go out and be a powerful witness of him to this world. And so my prayer for each and every one of us this coming week, for the rest of this day and coming into this next week, we have a window of time to be a witness and then the Lord returns. We're in that window right now. And I believe that we need to be watching, we need to be ready, looking at the signs that are going on around us and taking every opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you uh, for this time in your word, it's, it's so rich. There's so much to be seen about you 
in your word. And Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you in a greater way. We want to know you in a deeper way. We want to have our understanding broadened. We want to have eyes to clearly see. Not to dimly see, but to clearly see. We want to have ears to hear what you're saying to us, even this morning. That we would apply the things that we've just heard. That we would take them to heart. That it wouldn't just be words coming into the ear, but no action coming out of our lives. But they would, we would put feet to our faith that we would speak forth the glorious truths of the good news of the gospel to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.